This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and this is GG Well Played, the show that talks about all things video games. In this episode, we're going to be looking at Capcom's mini resurgence and future directions in light of the reception the Resident Evil series, including the upcoming Resident Evil Village, is currently receiving. But before that, here's a recap of some of the biggest news in the world of gaming with Ali Johan and of Nail Thing. Thank you, Hanif. Okay, let's head right into our roundup of uh, news in the gaming world. First up, after the announcement made late last year, Microsoft has officially finalized their $7.5 billion purchase of Zenimax Media, the parent company of Bethesda Softworks, after receiving the green light from the European Commission. Of course, Zenimax is the parent company to a lot of developers, including makers of games like Fallout, the Elder Scrolls series, Doom Dishonored, Wolfenstein, and The Evil Within, among many others. And uh, this has increased Microsoft's first part game studios to 23 studios and uh, despite the acquisition uh, Bethesda will retain its independence and will run as a separate business with its existing leadership. Yeah, so to mark the occasion, Microsoft has announced that 20 Bethesda games will now be available on Game Pass including popular franchises like we mentioned earlier, Doom, Fallout, The Elder Scrolls and Wolfenstein. Uh, Microsoft has also announced that it will be having a summer event and that Bethesda will be heavily involved in the planning of this said event. Of course, the biggest question that has been raised again regarding this acquisition is whether the games will be exclusive to Microsoft platforms in the future. Xbox head Phil Spencer said that Bethesda will honour current contractual obligations, but the partnership is about delivering exclusive games that ship on platforms where Xbox Game Pass exists. Yeah, so uh, this means that these games will most likely be available and exclusive to Xbox, PC and maybe even mobile devices if you take into account their cloud gaming initiative called Project X Cloud. Let's wait and see whether we'll be able to play the next Fallout, Elder Scrolls or Doom on platforms other than Xbox and PC. And moving on, a lot of companies are now embarking on their own showcase events uh, and Square Enix has jumped on the bandwagon announcing their own event called Square Enix Presents. <laughs> Very uh, straightforward. Uh, it's scheduled to take place on the 18th of March. Oh, this week. Yeah, the lineup includes a new Life is Strange series game, something related to the ongoing celebration for the 25th anniversary of Tomb Raider uh, and more information on the upcoming RPG shooter Outriders, there will be updates on Marvel's Avengers, Balan Wonderworld, Just Cause Mobile, as well as new mobile game announcements from Square Enix Montreal Studio. There will be a few games uh, from the sister company as well, Taito. Looks like a decent lineup so far for the first event, so do check it out on Square Enix's YouTube and Twitch channels when it happens this 18th of March. From that uh, to something a little bit more serious now, I think um, EA Sports is now embroiled in a scandal dubbed EA Gate, which uh, involving its highly popular football series FIFA and its Ultimate Team mode. Now, if you're not familiar with Ultimate Team, it's a mode that allows you to build your Dream 11 and you can compete with other players online. So how you collect players is by unpacking packs of cards that you have to gain either by grinding or by purchasing the packs using real-life money. If you're a fan of football, I'm definitely sure you have seen videos of um, football fans reacting to, you know, getting Cristiano Ronaldo or... Messi. Or Messi, yeah, on social media. 
And uh, FIFA Ultimate Team or FUT has made a lot of money for EA but it's also highly controversial because it's likened to gambling with a model that's essentially pay to win. Uh, so the UK has even considered regulating it under gambling laws. But back to the news, players usually chase cards featuring icons and legends from the game and reportedly an EA employee is alleged to have sold these highly coveted cards called Prime Icon Moments Cards for thousands of pounds. A Twitter user called Arcade Food has leaked exchanges between the alleged employee and customers showing the employee selling cards of iconic players like Brazilian Ronaldo, Ruth Gullit and Johan Cruyff directly to players. Yeah, I mean the prime icon moments cards are highly difficult to get with fans spending thousands to try their luck at unlocking these cards and we were talking earlier about how people get really excited about this. EA has also been criticised for refusing to disclose the exact probability of obtaining these cards so that makes it even more cloudy. Uh, with the EA gate trending on Twitter right now, EA has released a statement saying that they are aware of the situation and will be investigating it thoroughly. From that to a story that's much closer to home, renowned local CGI art studio that has contributed to some of the biggest games like Warcraft 3 Reforged, The Last of Us Part 2 and even Marvel's Spider-Man and Spider-Man Miles Morales, Lemon Sky Studios is the company we're talking about, have denied allegations that they've made their employees work long hours on weekends without any compensation. A situation that's called crunch in the industry. Yep, this comes after a video from a UK-based channel called People Make Games uh, discussing the issues of game publishers outsourcing content to external studios who then impose this crunch culture on their employees in order to meet strict and tight deadlines as well as to continue gaining these jobs from big AAA developers overseas. Um, in the video, they spoke to 11 current and former employees from Lemon Sky who remained anonymous and they said that the work culture at Lemon Sky is pretty bad. Employees are expected to work for 12 hours or more and come to work on weekends for months. Wow, that seems to be a serious claim here. And um, responding to these allegations, Lemon Sky Studios released a statement on IGN Southeast Asia that reads, We abide by all Malaysian employment laws pertaining to work hours and the contractual terms and conditions of employment with our employees. The allegations made against Lemon Sky Studios regarding overtime payments are factually and legally inaccurate. Uh, the company also said they are quite surprised that such allegations are targeted at their company. Yeah, the management also said that they will take appropriate uh, measurements in response to this. And this includes a process for obtaining feedback from all their employees regarding uh, those individual concerns. They also promise to remain steadfast in their pursuit to make good art and will continue to do so as they grow and improve. Now, the crunch culture has affected a lot of studios in the industry and sadly, it's not a surprise to read this happening to smaller studios, yeah. especially smaller studios that mm -hmm. accept these outsourced jobs from uh, these big developers and uh, they have to adhere to strict deadlines. So it's also sad that they use terms like hard work and passion to uh, guilt trip employees into working long hours without any compensation. Man, this sounds so familiar in an Asian setting. <laughs> but you know, that's the way it is, right? So we will be following this story closely and bring you any new developments as they come out. That is all we have for this week's recap. Back to you, Hanif. Thank you very much, Ali and Ofnil. We're going to make way for some ads. Up next, a conversation on Resident Evil Village's villain and Capcom's resurgence. Stay tuned. This is Gigi Well Played on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Gigi Well Played. I'm your host, Hanif Baharuddin. Mother Miranda, 
I regret to inform you that Ethan Winters has escaped that fool Heisenberg. Because he is in my castle and has already proven too much for my daughters to handle. When I find him... No, Mother Miranda. Yes, of course, I understand the importance of the ceremony. I won't let you down. That's the voice of Lady Dimitrescu, or more commonly known as Tall Vampire Lady. She's a villain from the upcoming Resident Evil Village, the next game in the franchise. The game's not out yet, but the character has already received a lot of fanfare among fans, indirectly hyping up the anticipation of the game even more. So to talk about this and also Capcom's mini resurgence with the Resident Evil series and their other franchises, I'm joined by Jonathan Leo, content director from gaming website kakuchopore.com. First up, John, can you tell us a bit more about Lady Dimitrescu? So Lady Dimitrescu, or Tall Vampire Lady as a lot of people like to call her online, is the latest in the long line of Resident Evil villains who are kind of over the top but have a menacing presence. So fans might recognize characters like Albert Wesker, Mr. X, Nemesis from Part 3 and the Part 3 remake last year, and the Baker family from Resident Evil 7. Lady Dimitrescu, Alcina Dimitrescu, is the new villain for Resident Evil 8. Fans right now do like her because of how classy she is dressed, how big her hat is, and how tall she is, as well as how she has stage presence when she approaches our hero, as well as having a bunch of her daughters who act as like, I guess, half vampire, half mutants who can break into flies, you know, transform and whatnot. And she has her own castle, so tailored after European horror, fiction, books, and whatnot. So the game is set in Europe, I believe, where Ethan has to rescue his daughter from this cult or from this castle. Not much is known about the story because, you know, it's a horror game. The mystery is there, has to be kept to preserve until the final game, and you kind of have to uncover it yourself. So Lady Dimitrescu is a long line of villains who orchestrated this stuff, and she answers to a higher power through a phone, which we don't know yet. So... Yeah, I believe most Resident Evil bosses in each mainline series are usually terrible-looking monstrosities. So in a way, this is like a change of pace for now in terms of like marketing the character and you know showing the intrigue or the new big bad of this particular entry. So like I mentioned, those three points I mentioned is like a trifecta of getting everybody on board, whether they're a horror game fan, a Resident Evil fan, or none fan who's just casually observing Twitter or DeviantArt or Facebook. How did Capcom react to this uh, whole fanfare? It seems that Capcom was also aware of the popularity of the character and played their cards well by feeding the fanfare with more details about the character, right? Uh, do you think that this is like, like a PR exercise or a genuine engagement with fans? I believe there's a little bit of column A and column B. Like a few weeks after that trailer, Capcom got the game's art director Tomonori Takano to reveal her actual height on Twitter, as well as to talk about the character's inspiration. So for those who don't know, she's 9 foot 6 inches tall and she's mostly inspired by Adam's family's Motisha Adams. So it's part PR exercise and part fan engagement. Capcom has been practicing this for quite a while. Um, not to this extent, but I think it's just like right timing, right place and right social media tools. This is like a huge contrast to last time, back in the HD gaming era when the 360 and the PS3 were around, when Capcom PR management and fan engagement was like very divided and very divisive. So it's good that they learn from their past mistakes that they're doing all this stuff right now, starting with Resident Evil 7 onwards to now. I think they're also a bit more vocal about telling about the design process of, I believe, their biggest hit, which is Monster Hunter World, 
Monster Hunter World Iceborne and the upcoming one next month, which is Monster Hunter Rise. Mm. Okay, uh, why why do you think the character has quite an appeal among fans? Uh, I think we have to somehow, I guess, address the elephant in the room, right? I think, was it our obsession, fetishization, or even sexualization of some of her characteristics? And also, did this somehow play to the stereotypical characterization of the male fantasy, especially among gamers? Uh, actually, f- not just... I wouldn't just put it just to Lady Dimitrescu because Capcom has quite a history of this. Like, they create a character they thought looked cool, cute, sexy. When they put it out in the wild, then a lot of people are, you know, the online space will act differently. Again, to show admiration and adoration to probably the point of obsession and fetishization like you mentioned. This isn't just to Lady Dimitrescu, although she has a big fan base right now, even though the game isn't out yet. And we know darn well that these kind of characters, these bosses in Resident Evil games, they end up as terrifying monstrosities when you fight them at the end. I mean, you look at William Birkin, you look at Adam Wesker, and who's the other character? Um, Oh yeah, Nemesis as well. Like, they went from ugly to even uglier per se. So I'm going to predict that Lady Dimitrescu is going to be the same way as well. As for, like, the whole stereotypical characterization, this has been going on with, I mean, not just Capcom, but every other video game company back in the probably the 90s and the 2000s where when they create a fighting game character, they need to get everyone on board. So it's not just straight males, but also some straight females who kind of show a bit of like adoration to design, how sexy it is and how bold. Good examples would be Chun-Li and Cammy from Street Fighter. Also Capcom games where in a way they're dressed up in a very stereotypical kind of fashion and also tailoring towards the male gaze, arguably per se. But at the same time, this is how the characters are recognized in from the outfit itself. Without the way they look, it's going to be a bit hard to recognize. I mean, again, this is all based off the 90s design they've done back in the 90s when Capcom was beyond their prime lab, basically. The fighting game boom, as you say. Yeah. Do you think that the character perhaps uh, was also over-sexualized? Uh, Lady Dimitrescu, right? Uh, like a lot of other female game characters, albeit at least this time from a slightly different angle. I don't think this is a marketing ploy, although... I think it's just an art director just saying, just being influenced by something cool. Like I did mention, the art director did say he was inspired by Morticia Adams and a bunch of like the Japanese myth, the tall haunted girl, if I recall, I forgot her name. But he's just basing it off of the influences, create something unique and something European. And voila, we got this uh, character, tall vampire lady. And in that sense, the whole sexualization and everything is all coming from, I guess from the audience as well, it's like unintentional per se, not entirely on purpose. I believe this is just how Capcom and how Japanese developers and designers just design the characters to be over the top. They know they're making video game characters, so some rules of clothing and some logic do not really apply. I mean, good examples including Resident Evil 5 uh, with Sheva Alomar. Resident Evil 3's Jill Valentine back in the first game, like in the PlayStation 1 version where she's wearing a denim skirt to run around from Nemesis. And like I mentioned, Chun-Li, Cammy, Laura from Street Fighter V, Crimson Viper, and a bunch of other characters. Oh, I think a good example is, we discussed earlier, Morrigan from the Dark Stalker series, where she's a succubus. Our director has to be like, yeah, we're going to make a, our own version of a succubus person who seduces mortals and steals their life essence. So that's how, you, that's how they design Morrigan, the succubus. Yeah, uh, but the kind of reaction that uh, perhaps, I mean, if you were to look at it from a different perspective, right? Uh, do you think that 
we can get away with things like this in 2021, if you know what I mean? It really depends on the context. Context is very important for this. The reason why characters like Chun-Li are dressed up as such was because they were created as such back in the 90s in Street Fighter 2 in the arcade. Her outfit is very iconic that if you change it, you're going to get a lot of really messed up, pissed off fans because that's an iconic look that has to stay. Like there are just some things you don't change like Ryu's gi, Ken's gi, Gal's outfit, you know, the tank top and the army pants, Sagat's look and Chun-Li's outfit in this, in this context. Same with Morgan and same with Felicia. Now, I know that some fighting games like Mortal Kombat, they did change up their character design so that they don't look completely like the 90s. Like you compare Mortal Kombat 9 to Mortal Kombat 10 and 11, where Sonya Blade is a bit more clothed, even the female ninjas, they still kept their iconic outfits. Mm. Um, and in terms of reaction, do you think that, I, I guess, uh, as much as people are celebrating this character, do you think that there will be potential backlash in the future? There's always going to be backlash because, again, the context is really required here in that sense. I mean, certain characters' outfits, if you change it in a way that it retains that identity but also not sexualized, I think that's fine. But I guess in Capcom's case, they rather just let sleeping dogs lie if you complain. Well, that's just more PR for them lah, in that sense. Um, I guess uh, we can extend this conversation to talking about the Resident Evil series, right? I think uh, ever since Resident Evil 7, the series has uh, seen a bit of a resurgence. Uh, and also, not to forget the remake of the older uh, games in the series, right? I, I guess, coupled with the hype that the latest installment, uh, RE Village, has been receiving, it seems like Capcom has been pushing the series in the right direction. Uh, do you think that uh, this is the case, especially for an IP that has been around for years now, if you think about it, right? And once, once I guess, stagnated and tired in its uh, formula, especially if you think about the reaction that RE5 and 6 received back then, right? Was there any changes behind the scenes that brought about these changes in approach? Uh, Especially if you think about how they decided to change from third person to first person with RE7. Oh, that is basically changing with the times because back in the 90s, Resident Evil was basically on a fixed camera angle. You get to see your character walking around in the room itself. Whereas now, because every game right now from horror to action games are either first-person or third-person behind the camera, they have to basically adapt to the times. I mean, if you're doing like a fixed camera angle, it has to be done as a throwback. But in terms of actual mechanics, they have to keep up the times. So since the inception back in the 80s and the boom in the 90s, Capcom has always been on the sequel-making train. But like I mentioned, as long as it's something that is like we're currently in the times, they're going to do that change that's necessary. They're going to keep doing sequels, that's for sure. So you're going to see a lot of Resident Evil games past 8 and 9 onward. But in terms of like camera angles and perspectives, they had to change that because the tank controls and the fixed camera angles are a thing of the past. That's like 20 years past. So every game nowadays, they have to be first person, they have to be third person because that's just what works right now. So Capcom are very smart in implementing this change for Resident Evil 5, 6 to an extent. And 7, where it's actually a scarier game when it's first-person, right? So there you go. And Resident Evil 2, the remake, because of how they cannot go back to fixed camera angles, the best they can do is basically pick the best Resident Evil that had the third-person camera, which is part 4, and they just used it for part 2. So it completely works in this context. 
And going back to what you said just now about how I guess they will continue making all these sequels to all these long-standing series, right? I I, I think uh, Capcom is is a big name and it's also home to a lot of other big franchises that are still like perhaps doing well among fans despite their longevity. Uh, series like Devil May Cry, Monster Hunter, and even the classic Street Fighter seems to still be going strong, right? How do they manage, you know, to keep interest going with these franchises? I think this is from a fan connect. I mean, basically, I guess recently. Since Resident Evil 7, Capcom has been listening to its fans. But during the HD era with the 360 and the PS3, that one was a bit of an iffy time. Like, they were really struggling around that time because they had these old IPs. They wanted to shake up Resident Evil after Part 4 made a lot of money for them. So they had to, again, I guess they followed the Western trend back then because I believe around 2008 onward, a lot of people are gravitating towards Western-developed games like your Grand Theft Autos and your Bioshocks and your Call of Duties. So Japanese game developers and big companies had to follow suit, but they did it in a wrong way. So they've learned from that really big mistake, and I believe from that mistake, they knew that they need to actually just stick to what they know best, which is create really great horror games or action games, as well as keep Devil May Cry the same as it was. Because if you compare like Devil May Cry 5, and you compare to the Ninja Theory remake, there's like huge differences right there in terms of focus. You could tell which one was the most superior game and you could tell which one was the one where Capcom did not know what they were doing and they got a third party to help them out even though the third party wasn't really well known for making strong action games. So I believe the reason why they actually get to where they are right now is because they listened to their development and their production team instead of listening to marketing or to a research and development guy who probably did not know any better and just followed the trends. So ex-Capcom folks like Shinji Mikami and Hideki Kamiya, they left because they weren't happy with how management handled their respective IPs and how they worked. In the past five years, a lot of things have been different because Capcom did a quote-unquote trim the fat. So you've got guys like Hideaki Itsuno and the current director for Street Fighter V who actually know the game inside out and are in charge and they are leading the game in the right paths, in their respective paths of, you know, catering to the fans what they want while improving aspects that will make fans happy instead of following Western trends that were driving back in 2010. So they learned from that lesson. Yeah, speaking of mistakes, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, there was once a moment in, in their timeline that perhaps they quote-unquote screwed up, right? Following, following Western developers is one thing, but can you perhaps maybe elaborate a bit more on what kind of mistakes that they made back then? Uh, I guess you mentioned the reboot of the Devil May Cry game as being one, but you know what other missteps that happened with, with the company back then? I believe it was between 2006 to 2010 when Capcom got their first hit, big hit, new IP game, Dead Rising, Keiji Inafune, the father of Mega, well, the quote-unquote father of Mega Man who used to work at Capcom and rose up in the ranks, he wanted to get this Western push forward because he kind of declared that Japanese game development scene is kind of dead. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said actually stronger words. So because of this push, he convinced Capcom and the company itself to get third-party Western developers to make some new IPs and work on their old IPs. But in the end, they ended up as failures, like Dark Void, like Spyborgs, that was under Capcom, and the 3D Bionic Commando with the, the Nate Spencer with the Metal Hand and the Dreadlocks. Yeah, that, that game really failed. And another, of course, uh, the biggest example of this is probably the DMC Devil May Cry from Ninja Theory. Also, another 
big example of this is Resident Evil 6, which was basically a game that tried to cater to every single taste, like from hardcore fans to even like non-fans who like action games and Western games. To sum it up, they put everything in this one game and a big budget, and it kind of failed. I mean, the game actually is the fifth best-selling game, but from 2013 up till now, it got those numbers. You compare it to Resident Evil games now, which actually got like huge numbers within a span of like two, three years or so. So you could see that Resident Evil 6 was considered a failure, a quote-unquote failure, because it got the numbers, but it did not make fans come back to it. In fact, I think a lot of fans were very divided about Resident Evil 6, which made Capcom rethink the series for a very, very long time, like put the main series to bed, and then they brought it back to Resident Evil 7. Another big mistake that Capcom did was they relied a lot on their marketing to the point where it's like oversaturated and it took over the message. Like Street Fighter Cross Tekken, that was actually a very promising game, but I believe Capcom actually spent way too much money advertising and pre-release marketing on the game. And there was a lot of PR snafu from the Cross Assault. There was like a reality TV show for, for this game called Cross Assault, as well as Bad Box Art Mega Man, as well as the microtransactions and uh, on this DLC kerfuffle, which was all amounts to very, very bad PR on their part, which basically made the game kind of dead on arrival when it came out, despite the marketing they tried to push. Lah. And I believe Marvel's Capcom Infinite was also another one, but that was more like, I believe, at least from my perspective, it felt like that was the only time, a rare instance where Capcom tried their best, but Disney kind of, for lack of a better term, they kind of gave very little for them to work with because of restrictions and whatnot, because they had to keep it in line with the cinematic universe. But do you consider Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite as a failure? Yeah, because after that game came out, no one cared. I think they did not feature the, any Marvel vs. Capcom game in like EVOs and major tournaments from here on out. Despite the game being very fun, I think everything surrounding it and the PR and the PR messaging and even how the game looked initially, that was like a death knell for every fan to hate on the game before it even came out. So that's just a one example where the gameplay of the game is good, but everything surrounding it from the PR to the mixed messaging and from the fan community kind of basically put the kibosh on the game itself. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about Capcom. I mean, when we want to talk about Capcom, I feel like they're home to a lot of like big IPs, right? But at the same time, I wonder whether they're curious about wanting to create new IPs as well. And and to a certain extent, fans, I'm sure as much as they are loyal, like will they be willing to keep on playing Resident Evil 9, 10, 11, or like even Street Fighter 6, 7, 8? Do you think that it's sustainable to continue making continue developing uh, all these uh, franchises despite the loyalty? Like, do you think that Capcom as a company would like to also try something new? Um, they've been doing this since the 90s. So, from Street Fighter 2, which had like Champion Edition, they got Turbo, they've got Super and then Super Turbo. Yes, I believe they can, they have proved that they can sustain themselves with old IPs, but they will also try their best in making new IPs whenever they can. I'm not sure how they're doing this right now because they've been very reliant on the Monster Hunter games, on the Resident Evil games, and I guess in, to an extent, the Street Fighter games. Uh, Street Fighter V, even though it kind of botched during its release in 2016, it actually in a better place right now. Whereas Resident Evil, like we mentioned, it actually it has focused all corrected now since Part 7. 
Mm. And they're actually quite good at developing IPs, right? I mean, letting it grow. I remember playing the first Devil May Cry and three generations later, we we have like the Devil May Cry 5 on PlayStation 5, right? So, exactly. So, Like I think, looking at their lineup, they've hinted or they've teased this new game called Pragmata. We still don't really know what is it about, apart from that one trailer. Uh, do you think that that perhaps can be, you know, their way of also uh, moving on with times, or rather, you know, especially in a new generation coming up with new IP as well that perhaps can be, you know, grown? I think that's the only way they can do this because they've been around since the. I believe it was the late 80s. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Like the mid 80s or so. So as a company, not just making arcade games, but also console games, they've been at this for a while and they know how to evolve. But at the same time, stick to what works for them, which is making sequel upon sequel. I remember there were, back then in the 90s, there were a lot of Mega Man sequels for the Nintendo. But then they freshened things up by adding a spin-off, Mega Man X. And then when that also ran its course... They had another spin-off called Mega Man Zero, as well as an RPG, well, action RPG called Mega Man Legends. You know, it's all under the same Mega Man family, but they branch out. I believe that's how they actually make the IPs evolve. Another good example is Final Fight. Once the beat 'em up river has run its course in the 90s, they brought in some of the popular Final Fight characters and put them in the Street Fighter universe. I believe they started this with Alpha Three, Street Fighter Alpha Three, in the late 90s and 2000s. And then Street Fighter Five, you got Final Fight characters popping up like Abigail, and Cody and Lucia from Final Fight Three. So in a way, they are upgrading the. They're still doing main mothership titles sequels per se, but obviously not like every single year. They're like they have like a three, four, five, six year gap in between sequels. I mean, I remember a time when it took like so many years to for Street Fighter. To to have a sequel like Street Fighter Three, which I think it took about five six years or so. Well, that's how they're doing things. They will always space out the sequels, but in the meantime, if they want to make a quick buck or maybe have to keep the series fresh, they basically just have to do spin-offs of particular games here and there. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. And 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 earlier you mentioned something along the lines of I think Capcom also focusing on arcade machines and even the the mobile mobile market, right? And I think that's also another strength of theirs, being able to churn out different products for different platforms, right? I I mean, focusing on you know the PC console market is one thing, but also developing the next Monster Hunter is going to be on the Switch, right? So they seem to be able to get their hands on not only a platform but you know, multiple platforms and being able to I guess dominate to some extent these markets, right? Mm, that is. True. Um, I believe every single franchise from Cap. I mean, like Nintendo, they only have like one console they work with per generation. I mean, two if you count like the handhelds back then. But they've always had this principle where if you can put Mario in any kind of genre, in some way, in a kid-friendly way, you've got it made. So Capcom took. I believe they had this same way of doing things, except with Street Fighter. With Monster Hunter, which is the biggest so far, I believe it's like in the top ten platinum games from Capcom. Monster Hunter World's the best-selling one. I believe it's sixteen million copies or higher than that. And um, yeah, Final Fight, also Devil May Cry and Resident Evil. They know how to actually put their characters in different games for sale, make spin-offs or whatnot. And yes, at the same time, they still also experiment with like fresh IPs, like. In the HD era, they actually took a step with Dragon's Dogma, which is a completely different kind of action RPG where they mix real-time action games like Dark Souls with their own 
Shadow of the Colossus style climbing on the monster kind of combat. And that actually worked out pretty well. And that was because they actually got the right talent for these kind of games where they took the guy who did Devil May Cry 3 and 4, Hideaki Itsuno, to make him do Dragon's Dogma. And it worked out. So I believe as long as they have like the actual best talent, they keep their, their new old talent around and make sure they do the projects that they're really good at, I don't think Capcom's going to have a problem in basically innovating and keeping alive up to this day. And based on the multiple IPs that they have, they're not going anywhere, right? They're not going. To, they're still going to be around, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually surprised they brought back Mega Man with uh, Mega Man Eleven back. Uh, I think it came out a couple of years because I believe when KG Inafune left, Capcom just put the kibosh on Mega Man projects and put him in a bad spot. But I believe that was a bit of a reinvigoration for now because they brought. They actually had the Legacy Collections and then Mega Man 11. So I believe that could be like a good turnaround for the Blue Bomber because Mega Man was actually the original Mickey Mouse for Capcom's site. <laughs> you know, like the mascot. Yeah. Okay, uh, before I let you go, I, th- I think this is just my random observation of, of, of how it works in the industry, right? I think while you have, you know, Western developers these days trying to also quote-unquote, for, for lack of a better term, milk a franchise. Japanese developers seem to be doing that a lot more, right? I mean, you can talk about, you know, um, Nintendo is a good example, Capcom, and then you also have Square. Bandai Namco <laughs> with every single anime fighting game they have. Yeah, Bandai Namco, Square Enix with Final Fantasy. So yes. it, it, seems, it seems to be... Yeah, why is that the case, do you think? Like, is, is it just nostalgia? Is it just loyal fan base? Or like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed now to think about it. You've hit the nail on the head. You mentioned the key points because there's a big fan base for it. They like the old games and they believe that with future iterations, the games get better and better and they introduce new and new mechanics or hopefully old mechanics making a comeback because there's still a ton of... Like, Monster Hunter World might have blown up because of, you know, Monster Hunter World coming out for the worldwide market, but Monster Hunter was pretty big back in Japan and slowly in America and Europe because of how Capcom hits on the surefire thing and then they improve and they improve it and it just got better and better for people who like these kind of action games where you kill giant monsters. I believe it's the same with Street Fighter although it went on the wrong path. Street Fighter's path was a bit rocky from between part 4 and part 5. But in terms of like the other franchises like Resident Evil, at least they corrected their course really quick or at least 4, 5, 6 years per se. I mean, the reason why I kind of wanted to do this show with you is because like, yes, it's fine to talk about the mistakes of a company because it shows that whether a company you like a company because of the all the good and the bad it's done, like you know, like you want to actually see them make your favorite games. Like I mentioned these missteps because I do love the company and its games. When you love something, you love both the good and the bad. Capcom has more good than bad, but you shouldn't ignore the latter because you know they can do better in the long run. As long as you make your voice and every other fan's voice heard, make sure they hear it and they improve. Like I'm going to be frank with you. Like, all my favorite games, I've noticed, most of them are from Capcom. From Mega Man 3, Mega Man X, Mega Man Zero, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Dark Souls 3, Breath of Fire 3, Final Fighter 3. Wow, that's all threes. Um, I'll bet you a lot of Malaysians and Southeast Asians listening to this radio cast, like, if they want to come up with their favorite games, like the top 10, I guarantee you at least one of them is probably a game from Capcom. It's interesting that you say that we shouldn't let companies forget about their missteps, right? Because I think these days, no one will let any big companies forget about their, their missteps, right? Judging by what happened with uh, CD Projekt recently. 
it seems to be a trend. Right? I think these days people will make sure that companies won't forget their missteps. That is true. Like history is there and always going to be documented by a lot of us, a lot of writers, a lot of YouTube videos who do this sort of like archival stuff so that it doesn't repeat itself. So basically Capcom has a lot written on its wall, especially during the HD gaming era and slightly before that. So they just need to make good decisions based on what not to do so that they can move forward and be better. So, I mean, even though Capcom might have a good run right now, they might fall back to their old ways. So hopefully we tell them not to fall back, you know? So that's what history is for, to bring up these points so that they do better. You've been tuning in to GG World Pit and I've been speaking to Jonathan Leo, content director from gaming website kakuchopure.com. We've been talking about Capcom's recent performances with some of their biggest franchises, including the upcoming Resident Evil Village. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, you can find the podcast on pfm.my, our app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play, and also Spotify. Do share your thoughts about the show or the games that you play via our email, ggwp at pfm.my. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at pfmradio. My name is Sunny Baharudin, thanks for joining us. Game on. Till next time, GG Well Played. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.